0: 105 Radio.
1: Women making waves. Now, I hear Linda that you've been quite interested in
0: the term "Huga." Is hygge.
1: that Huga. Right? Yeah, okay. yeah, yeah, yeah.
0: So, it, it so it came to the fore a few years ago, didn't it? And it's Danish. And it yeah. means cozy, warm. <laughs> it, it's, it's the winter thing. Because yes. you know the Danes have terrible winters, don't they? So they they like this being by the fire, being mm-hmm. all cosy on the sofa, all wrapped mm-hmm. up in something furry and warm. Mm-hmm. And, and adverts pick it up as well, don't they? they adverts do. pick up in this hygge thing yes. um, where, y- you know, you've got people by fires wearing very fluffy socks. And there's a <laughs> famous chocolate one and everything about it is very <laughs> soft so yes. cosy. And then she kind of bites <laughs> into a, a a chocolate, which makes you really want to have the chocolate. What
1: makes me think about yes, it's fantastic, isn't it? You come out of the cold, you come into the house, if you're lucky enough to get, you've got a nice fire, live. Do you say live fires? You say real fires, don't real, you?
0: I think normally real it's fires. real. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Live, live fire sounds a bit like the whole house is on fire. Yeah, exactly. No, and we the, fire, the fire brigade yeah. are standing by. <laughs> yes. That's,
1: that doesn't um, sound good. It's, no, 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 no. Or a forest what, fire. What, no, not good. But the thing, what makes me laugh is, is that you've got to have the prep before you sit down, so you've got to make sure the logs are by the side of the fire before you, know, you can put hygge. the fire in. You know, it's just not very huger, is it? No, you're you absolutely right. You've got to go outside, logs. outside to yeah. get your logs.
0: Freezing out of there, freezing.
1: And what if, if you go outside and there's no logs? You're not going to have your huger, are you, mate?
0: <laughs> <there at> <laughs> So instead of looking all cosy in the sofa, you're probably going to yeah. be covered in bits from the yes, logs. Your hands right. are gonna yes, are going to be mucky. Yes. Sawdust, be sawdust, yeah. everywhere down your trousers. Yeah. Yeah.
1: <laughs> so when you get to that stage, that wonderful picture where you see the cosy socks and the mug yeah, yeah, and yeah. the blanket in front of you, yeah. by the time you have reached that moment, yeah. it's time to go to bed. I would, I
0: would say they've got staff yes <laughs> that's the only don't. way the only way to be is to have staff i know i know i am being
1: mean i really am being mean. but it just makes me love these no, wonderful I'm pictures the same.
0: i'm the same i think you know you you would be cutting in your socks and you think oh god i've got to put something on my feet now to go out and stack up the logs again of course you will have you'll have a big basket of logs beside the fire Oh, yes. You
1: see, you've got to be prepared. It's a bit like when you you go to bed, and I shouldn't really say this, but I'm really into, wait for it, bed socks. Oh, I'm sure right, yeah. of And I've got, I've just what bought myself... What kind of a cold house do you live in, then? Well, yeah, very socks. cold, because Mr. T, Simon, does not allow us to put the heating on until the 1st of November. So what? <laughs> yes, I know, I know. It's really bad, isn't it? Oh, that so is So I bad. have to put my bed socks on. So the fashion for me is PJs and bed socks. Mm-hmm. Sex appeal? None whatsoever. <laughs> well, it serves Mr T
0: right, frankly. <laughs> <laughs> it does just <laughs> yeah, yeah, so no, but I, I... We we're yeah. the same in the bedroom windows open and everything i mean you know there's always a lot of fresh air in the bedroom it's quite yeah. cold our bedroom in fact it's like a haunted lemon house when you go in there. you're talking you open in the, the winter door, all the way through when oh, you no. when you open the door to the bedroom the temperature yeah. just drops by about 20 degrees you know, it's just ridiculous <laughs> you can see your breath you can just... <laughs> So it's just like going outside and sleeping in the garden. Well, it is, actually. Yeah, you won't have it any other way. It's much better for you. And he's right. You know, if you ever stay in a hotel and you can't open the windows, there is just nothing worse, is there, than being in a, a hot house?
1: No, it's true. It's true. And I think I've learned that as I've got older, I've realized it is much better. You're right. Not mm-hmm. to have the heating on a night and making sure we have fresh up, And you sleep so much better. Of course. Yeah. 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 yeah, yeah. yeah. So much better that I missed the alarm in the next morning, but that's fine. <laughs> no, you don't want to do that, though. No, I don't want to do that.
0: But what other rituals do you have at night, then? Because I've taken to mm. reading. Have you never read before, then, at night? <laughs> no, I've <I'm not>, <laughs> known how to read since I was five. do I, I mean, say. you know, for a while I got out of the habit, I love reading. But for a while I got out of the habit, and I was only ever reading when I was on holiday. And it would be my thing to do would be to take book or books on my Kindle on holiday and then get through them ah. all, you know, and I'd be completely unsociable for two weeks or whatever the holiday period was. But I've recently got into reading again just all the time. So I have the Kindle beside the bed because I've got a new Kindle that that has a backlight on it so you don't have to have the light on so you can read it in bed and not disturb anybody. So well, I, I read myself to sleep now. God, I
1: would find that so frustrating, Linda, because. Why? Well, how many pages do you get into? It do depends.
0: You- well, it depends. What mean- I mean, I've actually I've actually woken myself up again by the Kindle <laughs> hitting my nose. <laughs> well, I'm asleep. I'm bang straight down in my face. Have you never oh. done that?
1: No, no, uh, I haven't. Because okay. I don't take a Kindle in. I, I should actually try oh, to book, get her. Book could have the same effect if it was a big, heavy book. Well, well, that's true. That is very true. I think the only way of actually reading before you go to bed, mm-hmm. or before you go to sleep, rather, is to go to bed early. Say Yes, nine o'clock. it's
0: making me go to bed earlier. Ah, OK, yes. See, so that's a good, thing I think, Ooh, good. Whereas before, I'd be thinking, oh, I have to go to bed now. Now, <laughs> oh, I'll go to, bed, go
1: to bed, read my book. So much distraction, though, Linda, isn't there? Because all the wonderful box sets... Before I don't.
0: I don't. No, I don't. No? OK, boxes. so you're very but good. I do watch the telly and there's often something good on at nine that finishes mm. at 10. A lot of the good dramas start at That's nine o'clock true. at night. So I tend yeah. to go to bed at 10. You know, I might catch the headlines at the news just to yeah. pretend I know what's going on in the world. And then I'll go off to bed and so read till about 11
1: so your, your slots are then, nine o'clock you want to read your book, if it's a good book. And no, if you, no, no, 10 o'clock. So nine oh, o'clock oh, okay. is the good
0: drama on the telly. Oh, I Ten see. 10 o'clock, right. well, so 10 past is about the headlines and the first article in the news. Then, of course, you do your ablutions and all that kind of thing. So by about half past 10... You're lying in bed and you pick up your book and off you go. By quarter to two, you've got a bruised nose so, and woken you up, so you're then fresh again till about <laughs> eleven o'clock. Keeps you going for another chapter.
1: You're listening to Women Making Waves radio show and podcast. Brought to you by Susie Thorpe and Linda Ness. This show is all about women doing extraordinary things.
0: Have you um, ever learned to play the piano, Susie?
1: Yeah, I have.
0: And I did. how did that go?
1: Well, it went really well for about uh, a year mm-hmm. and a bit when I was. I only did it because I was trying to have a little bit more empathy with my children who I forced to play oh, you the were piano. were an adult.
0: Oh, you're an adult. Yeah. Oh, I, oh yes. Because I learned to play when I was a child.
1: Oh, did you? Yeah, and I was
0: very, very keen for the first ten minutes, like a lot of children are. Yes. And after yes. that I went for years, you know. But after that it became just a bit of a thing that I did every week and I never used to practice and I was absolutely shocking. Mm. I did go back to it, you know, a few years ago and re taught myself a little bit, but I still, you know, I'm very, very poor at playing the piano. But you so you took it up as an adult. How, yeah. how did that can well, you play then?
1: I, I I probably can play a few tunes but not a lot. Not a lot. I you mm. know the, the the tunes that the children play or learn to play with that would be my sort of top moments on that but it is interesting don't you think if you learn to play the piano when you were little and is it like riding a bike in a kind of it's, it's almost like know. muscle yeah there's a hmm. kind of
0: muscle memory that comes back quite quickly I think hmm. because of all the skills that you play and all the things that you learn in the theory and all of that kind of thing but I was always a bit rubbish because I, I didn't practice enough our guest today brenda lucas ogden on the other hand she was really really enthusiastic from the moment she started she was just she was one of these really really keen people whereas i was kind of oh you must learn an instrument and i was pushed along you know she was in a different category altogether and of course now she is sublime you should hear her playing the piano absolutely amazing so we speak to her and she tells the story of uh, marrying john ogden who's an incredibly famous pianist and what she's doing with the royalties of her latest release which is a piece by Ravel, and uh, she's giving that to the homeless charity shelter so very interesting person Jan Moore has been speaking to Dr. Patricia Farah, and she is a historian of science. And she's very, very interested in women in science and very interested in, in, in persuading women. work in science as well. Patricia is interviewed by Jan Moore one of our contributors and uh, Jan's getting back out there and meeting women again after you know a long period of lockdown and having to be away from everybody so she's having a ball at the moment going out and meeting people.
1: Women Making Waves
0: I'm delighted to be joined by acclaimed pianist Brenda Lucas Ogden. Brenda has released an album, Rovelle Cujem. The royalties of the album will be given to homeless charity Shelter. Thank you very much for joining us today, Brenda.
2: It's a great pleasure, Linda. It's lovely to be talking to you.
0: Thank you. Now, you're an amazing pianist, and I'm curious about the story behind that talent. At what age did you start learning the piano?
2: I was five years old. My mother started me off learning the notes. And um, I took to it immediately. And then I had a local teacher when I was six or seven. She was called Mrs Round. I won't forget Mrs Round. (laughs) (laughs) She kept interrupting the lessons to give Mr Round his tea, as she called it. (laughs) (laughs) And I complained to my mother that these lessons weren't quite up to the mark. But anyway, (laughs) I was determined to learn properly. And by the time I got to school, the convent of the nativity, I had a wonderful nun who taught me, Sister Mary Angela, who was very, very musical, and she inspired me a lot. And I did the usual associated board examinations, I got high marks in those and took it all from there. And then when I was um, fourteen, I had some private lessons from a teacher at the Royal Northern College of Music, as it is now. It was the Royal Manchester College in those days, Mm -hmm. and that was the um, emigre Russian pianist Izo Ellinson. I had these private lessons from him, he was very demanding, and he started me off with Chopin Etudes. Um, which was uh, not easy start. All uh, well, the fingers for that. And two years later, when I was 16, I entered the college. I was nearly 17, but I was 16 at the time, and still studied with Ezio Anson. You know, so, uh, you know, he was, he was quite an uh, inspiring teacher, actually. I mean, he'd, he'd uh, fled from Russia during the Revolution, and he told his pupils, Proudly, I was in prison with Glazunov oh. so oh. <laughs> Which we're very impressed with we don't know how he got out of prison, but he did and he escaped to Germany and there he um, He was taken up by a, a very kindly family called Stein a Jewish family and, and they very cleverly left Germany in the nick of time and Esau married the daughter Hedwig, and the whole family came to Manchester, gosh, uh, and had so yes, it was quite quite a story. It is mm.
0: when you were at the college, you met your future husband, John Ogden.: Yes, eventually, yes, I did, yes. And I believe the story is that you fell in love with him when you heard him play. well, I,
2: I don 't know about falling in love. I was tremendously impressed. It was um, he was playing Liszt Dante Sonata. On the platform of the college, and um, it was just su- such a staggering performance and i wasn 't the only one who was impressed. All the students who were passing by through the hall stopped to listen because they'd never heard anything like it before. He was the most outstanding pianist by far in the college. you know he was just a genius it was it was quite apparent. I was very impressed i mean Falling in love came later.
0: And you travelled the world with him, and you had two children with him as well. That must have been quite an exciting time, actually. Absolutely. Oh, it was very exciting. Incredibly exciting, yes. And were you playing at the same time?
2: Yes, I played quite a few. Big Australian tour. I played solo concerti, and we played two pianos together.
0: Mm-hmm.
2: Um, we did all the major Australian cities in Tasmania, and New Zealand as well. So, I mean, it was quite a long tour. ABC, the Australian Broadcasting Corporation, they were very good to us. It was very well organized. That must have been fun. Yeah, it was lovely. Um, We had a holiday after that on route back. We had a holiday in Greece. It was was a long journey. Australia is long today, but... It was unspeakably long in those days. Yeah, 1964.
0: Oh, that's right. I remember people going by boat. It was six weeks if you went by boat. If you Oh uh, yeah, it was. <laughs> <laughs>
2: <laughs> and then we had uh, a lot of time in North America, touring there, which was very exhausting but wonderful. Uh, John played in New York, Carnegie Hall, and wow. right, all the major cities really from East Coast to West, and back again.
0: <laughs> yeah, amazing.
2: I got a bit homesick in one of the tours, because um, I'd had this little baby girl, and I'd been forcibly removed from her, as it were, you know, for weeks on end. Mm. And so I suddenly decided I've had enough of this in the middle of this tour, and I said to to John, and. Uh, the lady who was organizing the concerts at the time swept in, in a very posh stable coat and said, You can't go home, Mrs. Ogden, we need you at the party. I said, Well, <laughs> I'm going home anyway. I'm going home. <laughs> so I did.
0: Yes, that must have been yeah. very, difficult very, very difficult when you have yes, a baby. It was. But yes. Yes, yes. Yeah.
2: Mm. Mm. it was nineteen sixty four.
0: Your husband started to suffer from mental health issues, I believe. Oh and
2: yes, but, but not, after, not after that. That came many years later, in 1973. So um, he had a lot of good years before he suffered from mental health issues. Good. Thank goodness.
0: Yes. Yeah. And sadly your marriage broke down, but you remained very close.
2: Yeah, it didn't break down immediately. It broke down uh, several years after that you know I was very close to him when he immediately broke down mm-hmm. we were estranged after the, the period when he was a professor at Indiana University and they unkindly sacked him after inviting him there for four years so we had to leave we spent four very good years at Indiana University and um, he didn't seem to mind that he'd been sacked and that, that, uh, that upset me a lot So we were estranged from, I should say, about 18 months, that's all.
0: And you wrote a book about him. Yes. Called Virtuoso. Yes. Telling the story of his life. Was was that a difficult book to write? No,
2: I started that book in Spain in the 70s. Now, I I felt that it was um, a story that people... It was before he was mentally ill. Mm -hmm. It started before... And eventually, I had a ghost writer, Michael Carr, who did most of the writing for me because the publishers wouldn't take my schoolgirlish writing. So, uh, Michael Carr, who is a wonderful writer actually, he wrote detective stories. Um, he got it published for me with Hamish Sholto in 1981. It's been republished several times.
0: Did you ever think that your talent was hidden in his shadow? Um,
2: I felt um, overpowered by him at times, yes, Mm -hmm. Um, but no, I mean, uh, he was very supportive of my playing, incredibly supportive, right from the word go, and I didn't feel, I mean, I knew I wasn't the better pianist, I mean, I was reminded reminded of that constantly. But it didn't come up as an issue in our marriage at all.
0: Mm-hmm. And you released an album, didn't you, of you both playing?
2: Oh, we released 40 records together. Mm-hmm. A lot of two piano work. All the, all the two piano works we did most, of, I think we, we missed out on some minor French works, but most of the big works we recorded. The Rachmaninoff Suites three times. Wow, amazing
0: body of work, really. Oh, yes, yeah, yeah. You now teach piano
2: and... No, well, I used to teach a lot. That's not true. When I lived in London, I taught all the time. Mm -hmm. Uh, Now I live in Cambridge. I just teach one or two adult students and they're all either in America or Australia or Germany. And that's all I do in the way of teaching now. But uh, I did do a lot of teaching. I did have uh, quite a big practice, actually when i was living in chelsea yes
0: i noticed your pupils rave about what wonderful teacher you are
2: oh thank you very much you've been reading my website
0: yes i have (laughs) (laughs) so teaching must have been something you really enjoyed
2: oh yes i i really you know i made very nice relationships and i still have a lot of ongoing relationships with past students
0: And teaching remotely, if people are in America or Australia, how does that work? Uh,
2: Skype or Zoom. Oh? It works very well.
0: Wow. You know, it wouldn't have occurred to me that that is something that could happen. That's amazing.
2: Oh, yes. Yes.
0: Now, your new album, Ravel Cujem, Yes, has just been released. And as we mentioned earlier, the royalties are to be donated to shelter. From me. Not, not.
2: Not from the companies, not from the record company, only me.
0: Your portion.
2: hmm hmm Yeah.
0: Why did you choose the homeless charity?
2: Oh, well, I mean, you know, why not? It's, um, it's a very worthy cause, isn't it? It's very difficult to see people sleeping rough on the streets in doorways. It, it really makes me feel quite ill. hmm So I wanted to do something
0: about it. That's something that's particularly close to your heart.
2: Yes, it is really. It, it was worse in Chelsea than it is in, in Cambridge, because I used to see when I walked down the King's Road, I used to, every shop doorway or window. There was somebody sleeping, you know, yeah. from Waitrose down to Peter Jones. There was somebody sleeping on the street. Yeah, it's really sad. Yeah, I think Cambridge is better.
0: Cambridge has charities uh, such as Jimmy's. Yes, with, I've with heard charity. of Jimmy's,
2: yes. yes yeah, and yes. trailblazers mm-hmm. and streetwives.
0: Yeah.
2: And of course the council are obligated to help, aren't they? At
0: certain times when the
2: temperature drops, yes. Yeah, but, but not only at certain times. I mean, if somebody's deemed to be absolutely homeless, after 56 days, they give 56 days to sort them out.
0: And I know they're building some little shelters for them as well, which is a great idea.
2: That is true. Mm -hmm. Yes, uh, Eliza, uh, quite great, sent me the Cambridgeshire uh, Strategy for Homelessness, you know, 17 pages of it. Mm -hmm. I was trying to memorise it, but it's quite... (laughs) 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 There there is a lot of opportunity, Um, but apparently they don't always want to get off the streets, some of these people. They like to be independent. Yeah. That's what I've been told, which is unfortunate.
0: Well, I guess for some it might be a lifestyle choice, but for those that want to get off the street, it's great that there's money available to help them, them.
2: Yes, yes, yes. Well, the council need the money, don't they? There's never enough.
0: Never enough. You're absolutely right. So we have this new album. Yes. How can people get a hold of it, Brenda? Oh, on Amazon. On Amazon. On Amazon, yeah. So if you go on to Amazon and you Google Brenda Lucas Ogden.
2: Google my name, Brenda Lucas Ogden, and then the title will come up. Ravel Kajame, it will come up.
0: Well, it's a great idea that you've had to donate your royalties to shelter. Really admirable, Brenda. And thank you for doing that.
2: <clears throat> it's my pleasure. It's the least I can do.
0: It's been lovely talking to you and hearing your story. It's been my pleasure. Thank you, Brenda Lucas Ogden. Now let's listen to Brenda Lucas Ogden playing a track from the album. It's Sonatini 2, Mouvement de Menuet."
1: And coming up next is Patricia Farrar, who is a historian of science and whose area of interest includes the role of women in science.
0: Cambridge 105 Radio. Cambridge Breakfast with Julian Clover and Lucy Milazzo
2: it's the breakfast show that's all about cambridge we've got the news
0: national
3: and local travel updates from the a14 to milton boat and all stations to cambridge
0: the people and the places plus guests in our friday food club cambridge juice
3: all the new things to do in the city
0: our daily quiz
3: oh yes questions questions with lucian
0: and all requests jukebox friday and don't forget the coffee cambridge breakfast with julian clover and lucy Milanzo
3: here with a fresh blend weekday mornings from seven What's in your spare room? Christmas decorations, maybe an old exercise bike. Could you give that room to a young person, along with a fresh start? St Christopher's Fellowship is looking for people to become foster carers in Cambridgeshire to provide safe, caring homes for teenagers who need help. And because we've been working to improve young people's lives since 1870, you can trust that you're not on your own. You'll receive regular training, dedicated social worker support, and space to share experiences with other carers. It's more than a spare room, it's a brighter future. Call 0800 234 6282 or visit stchrisorguk fostering. St. Christopher's, creating brighter futures. Hi, Pam here. Are you tired of the same old shops? Drop
2: into Fantasia on Mill Road near Parker's Peace. Enter our treasure cave full of fine clothing and exotic homewares. Natural materials, uplifting ambiance, mood improvement guaranteed. Perk up your wardrobe, your home, your life. Dare to shop different. Fantasia, 64 Mill Road, Cambridge. fantasia.uk.com
4: For opening times, please see fantasia.uk.com.
3: Cambridge 105 Radio You can listen to our interviews by visiting womenmakingwaves.co.uk. So today I'm talking to Patricia Farrer, who has been described as one of our most entertaining, incisive and irreverent historians of science. Quite a title. She's many publications to her name, contributes to TV and radio and general publications. And today I have a really excited Patricia sitting in front of me because she's just been awarded an amazing American prize. She only heard this morning, so could you just tell us about it?
4: Yes, I got this stunning letter, and this is the citation that's going to appear on my certificate. For outstanding and wide-ranging scholarship on the history of science, especially regarding the physical sciences in the 17th through the 20th centuries, and for bringing attention to neglected contributors to the physical sciences, including female physicists and practical workers such as navigators and instrument makers. And as you said, I am extremely excited (laughs) because this email arrived about an hour ago and I I haven't landed yet. (laughs) That's
3: incredible. Well done. Congratulations. I'm so pleased. (laughs) bet you are. So let's go back a bit then because you started as a physicist doing science.
4: Well, that's right. My first degree was in physics at Oxford, but I've never done any physics since I graduated. I've never been in a lab since then. I I decided I, I sort of got rather bored with it. And it was strange back then, uh, because if you got a sufficiently good degree, you were automatically awarded funding for a PhD. And I did what nowadays would be unthinkable. I turned down PhD funding and went off to earn my living instead. Okay. So
3: how did you get from all of that and and being a physicist, becoming Mm. interested in philosophy and history of of science
4: well the year after I graduated at Oxford they introduced a new course called physics and philosophy which is what I would really really have loved to have done and so about 20 years later I had the opportunity to decide what I was going to do and most of my friends thought I was absolutely mad because the only thing I wanted to do was get a PhD that seemed (laughs) to me like the best possible achievement so I, I lived in London at the time so I went to Imperial College And I did an MSc in the philosophy and the history of uh, science, but then at the end I decided although I was interested in the philosophy, actually I was far more interested in the history and that my PhD was on magnetism in the 18th century. Gosh. (laughs) which so magnetism then wasn't really a science that was one of the big things that i discovered it was uh, mainly to do with navigation people needed magnetism for practical purposes uh, for sailing around the world and one of the big lessons i learned about it was to try and forget all that modern physics that I'd learnt in my degree in Oxford, because it took me about a year to realise that electricity and magnetism in the 18th century have got absolutely nothing to do with each other. Whereas, of course, in my mind, they were bound together by all that 19th century physics that I'd learnt. But if you go back, then the situation is completely Different, and then after that, I sort of I got various fellowships. So I wasn't quite sure what to do, and at that stage in the sort of 70s, 80s, 90s, gender studies was t- not a taboo subject. It was a subject that you did if you were a woman, and I was determined not to be associated with women and physics. So I decided I was going to tackle the central male figure in the history of science, which was Isaac Newton. And I decided that as a woman, that was uh, who I was going to write about. And I did write a book about his reputation. One of the most satisfying bits was whenever I gave a talk, there were always some elderly men in the front row of the audience who would ask me a question and say, you don't really know anything about physics, do you? So I would glare at them and say, yes, I've got a degree from Oxford. And that shut them (laughs) off and I loved doing that. (laughs)
3: That's extraordinary. <laughs> but that, that's all
4: changed, I mean yes. now, now w- women women are winning Nobel Prizes in physics and mm. w- historians of science who are female are writing about men, uh, similarly men are writing about women, I don't, I don't think that applies anymore but it certainly did then mm. and that's why I decided to focus on Isaac Newton.
3: So Isaac Newton has been you know as, as you just said the sort of central mm. um, part of, of, of your professional life really yes. and the writing and and the research so what about um, other things i mean when you're deciding where you're going to be going with following this particular route i mean do you have a discussion with your publisher or This is just an area of interest or something comes out of some work that you're currently doing. Well,
4: I'm a great believer in general, when you're doing research, I'm a great believer in serendipity and following up anything that happens to come across your path by chance. And I think when you're doing research, that's extremely important because it means you bring things together that hadn't previously been associated with each other. And I wrote a book about science and suffrage during the First World War. And I'm not, I'm a 17th, 18th century historian, I don't, didn't know much about the 20th century at all, but it was just chance that suggested that to me, because I, I was in the archive at Newnham College, and the archivist showed me a beautiful handwritten, handbound book, which had been compiled just after the First World War by two Newnham graduates, and it showed the names and occupations of about 600 Newnham women who'd been active during the war. And I looked through it, and there were what I expected, there were women who'd been in the Red Cross and run committee meetings, been nurses, all that sort of thing. But at the beginning of the book, there were several pages describing women who'd done things like uh, vitamin research, they'd gone out to be doctors in Serbia, they'd been working on ballistics, they'd been working on explosives, on tear gas, all sorts of things like that that I didn't associate with women. And so I went rushing off to the university library, which is what academics do, mm-hmm. and I discovered that there were basically two types of book, relevant books about the First World War. One uh, was a large number of books that have been written um, by, mostly by women who are interested in women in the First World War. And those books tend to describe all the women who were taking over physical laboring jobs, such as... Uh, engineering and transport, uh, driving ambulances, all that sort of work, Munitions factories. And then there was another group of books which was all about the science during the First World War because science was very important but that was all about men and there wasn't anything about the women who were doing science so I decided I was going to investigate that myself and it was quite difficult because very often there's very scant evidence about what women were doing. So it needs quite a lot of detective work mm. to ferret them out. But um, that was what I did in, in the end. I wrote a book about women in engineering and medicine and science during the First World War, and I found quite a lot of them, and I'm sure there's far more to be discovered. I'm sure there's sort of diaries and letters in archives in some sort of grandmothers' flats and all that sort of stuff. So it just needs sort of a lot of tenacity to dig the evidence out, but it is there.
3: Mm, so you're generating, aren't you, the, the interest? Well, I hope so. <laughs> I mean,
4: I've had uh, a couple of students who, soon after i published that book, they decided they were going to do research projects. On one of them, the first one was a young man, and he did a brilliant dissertation, undergraduate dissertation, on a chemist called Ida Smedley, and he found out far more about her than I have, because he was just focusing on... The her and he wrote a wonderful dissertation and other students have as well so i hope that i've generated interest and also similarly what happened in the second world war because the pattern in the two wars was similar that during the war everybody was terribly enthusiastic about women taking on these male jobs of being an engineer or a doctor but then of course as soon as the war ended and unemployment rose all the jobs went to the men and the women were pushed back into the domestic domain and that's the sort of general pattern that happened after the first and the second world wars i think
3: yes i mean women were told that they were giving up their jobs for the men coming back yeah
4: and i think it well for the second world war it wasn't really until the 60s that all the women's liberation movements started and of course that was the period that i was growing up in that i was at school during the 60s so it was very influenced by that
3: Absolutely, it's just fascinating, isn't it? I mean, as you say, there are probably cupboards in the backs of people's rooms that have got great Aunt Flo's information there that that showed what she was what she was doing. And it is just coming out, isn't it? Well, I yes.
4: I mean, it there has to be discovered, and I think there's a lot of archivists who've got diaries and letters of women of that period and what nobody realized before is that actually quite a few of those women might have been involved in scientific projects but it didn't really occur to anyone that women were carrying out that sort of job.
3: So it's, it's real investigative work isn't it, really a discovery in in terms of not as you said you haven't been in a lab for a long time yeah. <laughs> but it's different sort of lab work isn't it it's it's still finding out and making links and
4: it is and of course it's all changed over the course of my career because when i started we didn't really have computers and we didn't have the internet or anything like that whereas of course we do now so the nature of the research has changed it used to be involve a lot of hard work climbing up and down stairs in the university library but I mean, although it's wonderful how much you can get on the internet, there's no substitute for seeing the actual documents. And what I'm thinking about in particular is there's a wonderful women's library on the top floor of the LSE library in London. And I went there and I ordered up some boxes of material. And my favourite thing is I discovered this very tattered envelope and it had a censored stamp on it because it had been read by the inspectors on the way back. And it was from a woman who was in the middle of Serbia, and she was out there, and she was a doctor in the middle of Serbia, and she'd written on a tiny little slip of paper in what must have been a stub of pencil. She'd written a letter to her friend saying how awful the conditions were, how they'd come to their last half an inch of candles it was freezing the bread was all moldy she didn't know what was going to happen to her she did actually survive and come back although a lot of women didn't and there was something really magic about sitting in the middle of this very smart sophisticated library holding this little slip of paper which somehow for over a hundred years had survived and come back to England and was in an archive. And I think, you know, there must have been there must be things like that everywhere. I don't believe anybody else had read that particular note. It was just that I was interested in it and I, I found it. Mm. It was a wonderful feeling. Well the internet isn't it's, going to the do internet that. can't do that. <laughs> it is not the same as having the censored envelope and this little piece of paper yes. that's actually been in Serbia in a snowstorm. Yes. <laughs> Yes, because everything
3: just comes alive at that moment, then, doesn't it? This, yeah. this is a personal thing. Well, you can see the thing.
4: pencil, or else Gosh. if you read eighteenth-century documents, which are all in pen, you you can see when they're running out of ink because the colour changes, <laughs> or you can see there's a sort of big splotch, or or the sort of the equivalent of if I put a coffee cup down on a piece of paper, you can see all that sort of stuff as well. Or, or when they they get tired at night and the writing deteriorates, or perhaps they've been drinking, I don't know. And then the next morning, the starts starts it's all sort of fresh and new so that sort of engages you with the person as an individual and of course you don't get that on the internet.
3: I was just thinking I mean talking about the internet about where we are currently because I was thinking as I was preparing to to come and chat to you today that over these last months a year and a half suddenly science for most of us is completely at the fore. We are recognizing scientists Mm. on our televisions and we hear the phrase, we're going to be following the science in terms of making decisions. So I think, I was just thinking that it's a, we now have perhaps quite a a different view and sometimes it's not a clear view because the internet can give us not necessarily accurate Mm. information and it's not like that piece of paper that you picked up where that person has actually
4: written down what they were doing and what they saw. Yeah, I think, I mean, when everyone says we must follow the science, which I totally agree with... On the other hand, it is medical science and I, I think medicine's sort of a slightly different sort of science. I mean if you if you're sort of talking about I don't know, Einstein's relativity and curved time space and things, that's perhaps not everybody does want to get engaged with that. And there are a lot of sort of theoretical debates about whether you have progress in science, whether science really is improving. But I think in medicine, there's, it's a different sort of question. I mean, although you could say that society has brought the pandemic on itself in some ways, on the other hand, medicine's very sophisticated and de- is developing very effective new ways of dealing with with it so I think medical science is slightly different from the rest of science and engineering they're obviously very closely related mm. and of course there are a lot of people all the anti-vaxxers who are choosing to ignore the science and I think that is a sort of it's an enormous problem to do with the Covid pandemic but I think it's a problem in general that quite a substantial number of people are sort of resistant to the imposition of science and perhaps global warming is evidence that perhaps science isn't necessarily always a good thing
3: Mm, yes you may well be right so what are you working on at the moment are we
4: allowed to know that (laughs) oh well i've got i've got two two parallel things going Uh, one is um i've been looking a lot during lockdown i've been looking a lot of scientific caricatures and writing about those and trying to sort of unpick all the hidden meanings, and because I think they reflect people's attitudes towards science. I mean, the most obvious example is Charles Darwin when his theory of evolution came out, and there were lots of lots of caricatures expressing their fears about the relationships between human beings and um, other primates. And a lot of those embodied um, very racist attitudes as well. So I I think that sort of thing is extremely interesting. Uh, The other thing I've become very interested in is there's an organism called slime mold, which is a very unprepossessing name. And slime molds, they're neither plants, nor animals, nor fungi. They're, They're in a little group on their own. And there's very, very, very tiny single-celled creatures. But when they're hungry, they can join together, and you get this giant, giant single cell with lots of nuclei in it. And they can swarm around, and they appear to behave intelligently. So, for example, they can swarm through a maze very, very efficiently to get right to the food in the middle of it without getting sidetracked. Or else there was a man in Tokyo who got a map of... Tokyo and the surrounding cities, and he put a blob of slime mould on Tokyo, and he put oat flakes on all the cities. And the blob of slime mould, within about 24 hours, it had sent out tendrils to each of the oat flakes. It didn't just swarm out from the middle, it sent out tendrils, and the tendrils followed the actual railway network that had been designed by engineers. So they're using some of the ideas of slime moulds in order to write computer programs for instance to look at all the filaments that are linking the cosmic dark web or to work out things like delivery problems if you've if you've got a salesperson and they've got to make a delivery in 20 different cities what's the most efficient way of driving around them without going through them so they're sort of redefining sort of what it means to think and the woman who was the world's expert on slime moulds in the early 20th century, was a woman called Guglielma Lister. So I've been very interested in research into her. God, it's hard to get your mind round. Yeah, no, it's it's extraordinary. The the French word for this thing is le blob. It's named after the American (laughs) sci-fi movie. So I found out about Guglielma Lister first because over lockdown I was involved in a project with a musical group called Minerva Scientifica. And we did a series of eight performances at Chelmsford Theatre in Essex. This was all online. And it was a mixture of me giving a PowerPoint and then Francis M. Lynch and various other musicians singing and performing. And then we had a visual artist as well. And we we did all this throughout July and August last year. And the idea was to encourage young women from Essex to become scientists. So we had to focus on a different female scientist from Essex every single week. And that's how I found out about Guglielmo Lista. I was told right next week, we're doing (laughs) Guglielmo Lista. So by next week, I had to have a PowerPoint with slides and information. But I became very interested in her.
3: I'm not surprised. I mean, Mm. the idea of this slime,
4: I know I only found out about that later I mean she's a very interesting woman in her own right she was one of the first members female members of the Linnaean Society and I think it was 1905 and she had this whole network of friends because if women were going to do science they tended to go towards the biological Mm. sciences rather than physics or maths so um, I mean, again, I mean, it's rather like what I did for the First World War. There's this whole network of women that are concealed and we just don't know about. Gosh. So there's, there's no end to the
3: possibilities. You're not no, short oh. of work to do. No, 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 no. No, <laughs> no I've got plenty of ideas. Plenty of ideas. God, yeah. Yeah, well, it's such important work that, that, you know, it's there. It's a, a hidden world and such an important world that, that needs to have
4: a light shone upon it and well, for us to be aware of. Well, I think the work on women in particular, I think, is really important because there's still so much discrimination against women in science. I mean, in theory, unlike then, in theory now, we have equal opportunity and equal pay, but that's absolutely not true. The average salary of male scientists is far higher than that of women. And one of the things I hope is that by looking at these women a hundred or more years ago, it's relatively easy to see all the prejudice and discrimination that they experienced. And what I so hope is that by exposing that, it'll make us more aware of the prejudice that still survives. So for me as a historian, the whole point of studying the past is to understand how we got to the present. And the point of doing that is to try to improve the future. So that's my basic sort of mission as a historian. Well, it's incredible because
3: it just will hope, hope that we will not be making the same mistakes again. And actually...
4: Ooh, there's, there's lots of new mistakes left <laughs> to be made, <laughs> I think.
3: True. But this extraordinary resource, otherwise, that we're, we're yeah. not mm. validating and we're not using if we're, mm. not, if we're not careful.
4: Yeah, and I think... Talking about women from the past is quite a good springboard for encouraging women now to think about their position and to talk about it and uh, increasingly men are very interested in talking about it as well and certainly the attitude in Cambridge or in academia in general has changed colossally over just over the last 10 years and young women students often say to me that they're in despair because nothing's ever going to change. And I just say, well, look how much it's changed just in my own lifetime. So I I think things are improving.
3: Wonderful. Well, thank you so much for sharing that with us all. And congratulations again for this wonderful award that you have won. That's, I'm, I'm so thrilled that you've been able to tell us. Oh, you, thank, thank
4: you press. very much. I managed to forget about it while I was talking to you. <laughs> <laughs> so th- thank you very much for inviting me to be on the programme. Oh, I thanks. very much appreciate it.
3: Thank you very much indeed.
0: interesting women on this program, don't we? I mean, Brenda, who, you know, became a professional pianist. I mean, there must be very few of those in the world, concert pianists. Amazing. Yeah,
1: yeah, absolutely. What a life. You know, sometimes you think, is it glamorous? Is it not? But it's very much hard work, isn't it? It's not like just coming along and tinkering on that piano and thinking you've got it but the practice that goes behind it and the pressure, which we don't see obviously when we're watching someone play so beautifully. Mm -hmm.
0: And we heard her playing at the end of the interview and it Mm. is absolutely stunning. You know, I used to think that my piano teacher could (laughs) play really, really well and she could. I mean, I'm not detracting from her she could absolutely but of course, this is another level. This is. is another level altogether. <laughs> yeah, no, it is. Yeah. Incredible. Yeah. Incredible. And of course, Dr. Patricia Farah. Mm. Amazing, wow. really, wow. you know, when I think about it. What an amazing. But people have such interesting jobs, don't they? I, I just think yeah. that my life is so boring compared to a lot of the, the, the guests that, well, all the guests really, that we have on Women Making Waves are such fascinating people. To be able to spend your life investigating and researching and yeah. writing about something that you love like that that's just amazing
1: well you know i years ago my own um, father-in-law he's a historian and he's, his his speciality was first world war and he decided that he was going to take some the battle strips. and there was often a point where i would say to him where are the women that were around i mean they're half of the world. And, of course, that was his speciality. He couldn't actually answer that. But it's so lovely to be able to hear from Patricia about what she has discovered. It was was really enlightening and thoroughly enjoyable.
0: Yeah yeah exactly uh, when, when you are really into something it's, it must just be amazing and of course she just won the american science prize as you heard in the interview and she literally just heard about it moments before mm-hmm. she did the interview isn't that incredible
1: oh yeah absolutely and you could tell jam was excited for she her was. as well as actually patricia being excited as well what yes. a lovely moment
0: Well, sadly, that's all we have time for in this episode of Women Making Waves. We'd like to thank our guests, Brenda lucas Ogden and Dr. Patricia Farah, as well as our contributor, Jan Moore, and her sound engineer, Tony Sofford.
1: We're always on the lookout for women who are doing interesting things. If you know of a woman who you think we should be talking to, please
0: get in touch. You can contact us via social media on Twitter and Facebook at WomenMW or on Instagram at Women Making Waves.
1: You can also find us on cambridge105.co.uk or you can visit our website, womenmakingwaves.co.uk where you can hear all of our interviews.